All right. Well, welcome to worship today. The question is, what are your vital signs? We're going to talk about that today, and I want you to be the diagnostician. I want you to to, to kind of do your own checkup. You probably know yourself better than anyone. We're going to talk about kind of how healthy we are, not, not only as a church, but also as individuals. But, but let's set the foundation for that today. As you know, we've been studying these seven churches in what was known as, in the Bible, as Asia, but which we came to call Asia Minor. We started with Ephesus and Laodicea down here in the southern area. And then the next week, we went to Smyrna and Philadelphia. Last week, we talked about Pergamum and Sardis. And as you can tell, there's only one city left because we've been coupling them together. Today, there's only one left, and that is the city of Thyatira. We're going to focus today on Thyatira. Now, one thing you may want to know about this city is unlike some of the other cities we've seen, it didn't have a lot of impressive temples and a lot of cool things that had happened there. Many of you have expressed how much you appreciate these little historical anecdotes that I'm bringing into these messages. And it's easy to do because most of these cities had a lot of wonderful or at least interesting things that happened there. And some of them were political capitals, other of them were leading cities economically and so on. But Thyatira was kind of like Dwaynesburg or something, you know what I'm saying, in the big scheme of things, and I say that because I love Dwaynesburg and lived there for a while. Uh, no, Thyatira, it was more really of a blue-collar kind of place. It didn't have a lot of unusual things going on in it. But here's the interesting thing. It's the smallest of all of the seven cities we've looked at. And yet God's message to it, the Lord's message, is the longest. So that's why we've saved it for last. And we're talking today about your vital signs. Now, this will be four weeks that we've spent looking at two chapters. But I just want you to buckle your seatbelt because next weekend, we're going to cover two chapters just next weekend chapters 4 and 5. And on this tour bus of Revelation, uh, we're really going to pick up some speed next week. And I also want to make a quick little commercial here for the weekend after after next weekend. In other words, two weeks from today, you do not want to miss. If you have to miss two weeks from today, be sure you check it online. You do not want to miss that message. It's absolutely critical in understanding this book, and especially in understanding where we're going after that in this series, all right? Twelve messages in all, but that seventh message two weeks from today is absolutely critical. Now, some of the pastors of Grace and I were away at a conference this week uh, on the surprising work of God. And one of the presenters said some interesting things A lot of them did, but this particular teacher talked about how the Puritans, what we call the Puritan people, in the 17th century did a cartography of their soul. In other words, they tried to map their spiritual progress, and they were constantly 
scrutinizing, where am I with the Lord? How healthy am I? How am I doing with prayer and the word of God and service and so on? And I thought, wow, how appropriate for today's message. Because that's what I'm asking you to do today with your own soul. What are your vital signs? Now, the verse that we're going to get these vital signs from is verses, actually, 18 and 19. Would you look with me at what it says? To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. Now, check these words out. And if you underline or mark in your Bible, you might want to underline these four words that the Lord uses. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Those four words, love, faith, service, and perseverance are the four vital signs we're going to check as we do our own soul cartography today, as we check out how healthy we are in our own life. So let's get started. The first word used to describe this church that the Lord compliments them for is the word love. Now, I have some instruments up here that I'm going to be using today to kind of introduce you to some of these. So have any of you seen this before? I had a doctor once, and I don't think I ever saw this guy without a stethoscope like this around his neck. He just carried it everywhere he went. You know why? Because this is such a common tool for a doctor. You put it like this, and then you listen both to how someone is breathing, their lung function, and you listen to their heart, right? And if there's anything that's vital for health, it would be your breathing and how your heart is doing, right? Stethoscope is a basic instrument to check that. And when we're talking about the essential health of a church or of an individual Christian, I would say that love is definitely going to be at the heart of that. If I were using uh, something to describe the health of a church, I would say certainly their doctrinal purity is important. Uh, Certainly their moral integrity is real important, of course. God said, I want you to be holy because I'm holy. And we could point to various other things, but certainly there would be nothing more important on that list than is that church, is that individual a loving person? Do they demonstrate love? Now, uh, the reason I would put that right at the top is because I kind of get it from this guy, his, his name. Maybe you've heard of him. His name was Jesus, pretty interesting guy. And he said this to his followers and to us. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's John 13, 
verses 34 and 35. And so I would say that if we're mapping the health of our soul, if we're trying to get a sense of where we are, we'd better first of all start right there with what Jesus said is the indispensable mark of a healthy disciple. What is the love quotient? And Jesus compliments this out-of-the-way church in Thyatira. He says, you guys are doing well with that. How are you doing with it? George Barna is the preeminent researcher in America for the church. He researches trends in the culture and trends in the church. And in a survey some time ago, the Barna Research Group surveying people who were what we would call busters, many of them, that's their designation age-wise, born 1967, 2002. It went into the next group as well, not just all busters. But in that age group, born 1967 to 2002, they found that 87% of them said the word that most describes Christians is judgmental. Not love, but judgment. A couple of years ago, I heard a true story that came out of North Carolina, I think that illustrates what I'm getting at. A former football player had a bad car accident on the road and uh, was able to extract himself from the car, although he was injured, big old strong guy. He went to the nearest house. He was kind of in a panic. He knew he had some problems going on here, and he was afraid of, of what might happen. So he went to the closest house and began vigorously knocking on the door. Well, there was a woman inside, and she was afraid. She didn't know what was going on. She couldn't hear what he was saying, and so she called the police. Now, the police arrived. They think they're responding to a breaking and entering situation, right? So that's what they have in their mind. That's what the woman described to them. So when the injured man who'd been in the accident saw the police, he thought, good, help is here. He started running toward the police vehicle. The police, not understanding the situation, one of them pulled out a taser. The taser didn't work. The other one pulled out his gun and shot the man dead. And I thought, now, what a tragedy. But then I thought, what a picture that is of what often happens in the church, People show up at church because their life is wrecked many times. They show up, life is a mess, things have gone bad, and they come looking for help, but instead at church they get shot down and end up in a worse situation. I wonder how often that happens in church. Sometimes love is just not the quality we're most known for. True story. Well, I grew up in rural parts of Tennessee, grew up in a little church, wonderful church, had a lot of good things going for it, so thankful for the church, I found the Lord there. But this story I'm about to share with you is not something I'm proud of about what happened. When I was a teenager, there was a, a, a young girl in our church just a little bit older than me. She was also a teenager. Uh, she was not a member of the church. In fact, I know that she was struggling with where she stood with the Lord. But because she was such a gifted piano player, we didn't have a full band in our church, if you know what I mean. We, we had one instrument, the piano. 
And occasionally someone would play a small organ that was kind of on the other side of the the platform. But it was mostly piano. And she was so gifted at that, although she was not a member of the church, she was active in the youth group and she was the piano player for the church. So she's very visible. But she became pregnant without being married. She was very repentant very transparent, very sorry for the way she and her boyfriend had been conducting themselves. She fully acknowledged, fully acknowledged that it was contrary to her own values and so on. And she wanted to continue not playing the piano, but just coming to the youth group because she was learning so much and, and really felt God was changing her life. She wanted to be ministered to through this challenging situation. But many parents didn't want her around their children, stating that she was such a bad example, they just didn't want their teenagers exposed to that. And so here's the truth of what happened. This young teenage girl, at the moment of her deepest need, was rejected and asked not to return. Now, I know that story is more complex than might meet the eye, and I know there's a number of different angles to that situation and so on, but folks, I just want to tell you, if the church is not a place where hurting people can come when life is wrecked and when they need help, if it's not a place that can love people wherever they are, we need to stop calling ourselves a church. And I thank God that grace, as far as I know, is a place just like that. We are a place where people are loved just as they are. I believe Jesus would give us a thumbs up on that. I believe if he were checking the vital sign of love for us, I think he would say, you guys, I have open arms and welcoming arms to everyone who comes in your doors. And you don't expect people to act like Christians until they are. Did everybody hear that? It's real important. If you didn't hear it, you need to get it. We don't expect people to act like Christians until they are. But once they are, our expectations are high. And we hopefully have a good, healthy accountability then in the body of Christ for those who've declared, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's the way a church ought to be. Now, in addition to these compliments that Jesus gives, he also gives them a warning down in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, I'll say a little bit more about Jezebel in just a few minutes. But right now, I want to focus on that word, you tolerate. I think you'll agree, if you're a part of the American culture, that we hear a lot about tolerance in our culture as we are increasingly pluralistic, not only in beliefs, but in values and in behavior. And I hope, I hope we could all agree that tolerance is a beautiful thing when it comes to so many, especially of our cultural differences and some of our peripheral beliefs. I hope we could all agree that tolerance is an absolutely beautiful thing. We need to be tolerant of one another because we're very different. Uh, and I'm, I'm so happy that 
Giants fans are at least fairly tolerant of Patriots fans and and so on and so forth. And Yankee fans and Red Sox fans get along a little bit. They, they choose to be tolerant, even though they know the other group are egregious sinners at the core. They, they choose to tolerate one another, all right? But I want to make what I, I think is a critical observation. It used to be years ago in our country that while we recognize the appropriate virtue in, in tolerance, it used to be that everyone acknowledged in order to even tolerate something, you have to first of all disagree with it. The very definition of tolerance meant I disagree. Or in some cases, I believe that's wrong, but I'm going to choose to practice good-natured tolerance. But it first of all required that you acknowledge that's wrong or I disagree. But something has shifted. This is huge. Now in our culture, when we talk about tolerance, many are expecting that means that we cannot even declare that something is wrong. But tolerance has come to mean that you somehow have to say that every truth claim is equally valid. And that everything is just the same and nothing can possibly be claimed to be above something else. Well, what we find here in Fire Tyra is that love and tolerance are not necessarily synonymous. They're tolerating some things they ought not to tolerate. I like what Josh McDowell writes about this. He writes, tolerance says you must approve of what I do. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. But love responds, I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow God's way because I believe you're worth the risk. The first test of any healthy church or Christian is what is the love quotient. Are we loving? And make no mistake, to truly love someone does require wisdom. There's many things we ought to tolerate and some that it's dangerous to tolerate. We'll say more about that in just a minute. Well, if love is the first test, the second test is faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if the stethoscope is a good instrument for testing kind of the heartbeat or the love factor, I, I think this might be a good instrument for testing maybe the hearing faculty. Now, this little instrument right here, and all of you have you've been to the doctor have had one of these used on you, right? The doctor takes this, and she does what? She begins to look, for instance, into your ears. And she begins to check, well, what is your hearing function? Are there any blockages? Is there excessive wax buildup? Are there any early indications of infection? How are those eardrums doing? Uh, checks that hearing function. Now, Christ was concerned about the, what the people in Thyatira were listening to. 
mentioned there earlier, this whole thing about Jezebel. Remember that? And uh, this is a very interesting situation that was going on in the church. Let's read a little further here, starting in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you, he goes on to say. I to- you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, what in the world is going on here? Jesus is gravely concerned about what the people in Thyatira are listening to. Last week in Pergamum, we saw a church that was beginning to water down the gospel. And today, we begin to see some of the signs of what happens when that occurs. Now, he says here, I'm going to strike her children dead. He's saying, I'm going to deal severely with this situation. Now, who is this Jezebel? Well, again, the key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. And if you want to read about Jezebel, you can read about her in the book of 1 Kings chapter 16 and following. She was a wicked queen who was married to a king named Ahab. Now, of all the women in the Bible, there was none more devious, more dastardly, more deceptive, more wicked than Queen Jezebel. And she wielded tremendous influence in the kingdom. To give you an example of how powerful she was, Elijah the prophet, who lived at the same time, was kind of the Ronnie Rambo of the prophets. I mean, you read about Elijah, there's nobody with a more get-it-done attitude than Elijah. I mean, he, he didn't put up with things that were wrong or out of line. He, he spoke boldly for God. He was a powerful prophet. But Jezebel was so intimidating that even Elijah ran for his life, fearing what she would do to him, and he ended up in a deep depression. More than any other woman in the Bible, she is the epitome of wickedness. So, what's going on here? There's a woman, she probably didn't literally have the name Jezebel, but The Lord is probably speaking metaphorically here. It's like the spirit of Jezebel has been reborn through this woman who's teaching false things. You say, well, pastor, what does that have to do with us? God wants us to be very careful about what is going into the ear gate, what we're listening to. It's trite, but it's incredibly true. Garbage in, garbage out. And the truth of the matter is, while faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, word of God, the destruction of faith 
often comes through hearing things that are poisonous and toxic to our faith. So one of the things we have to ask ourselves regularly is, who is the Jezebel influence in my life? By the way, that's not just referring to the the feminine, it's also the masculine. In other words, who is the Jezebel in your life? Is it a professor who's teaching things that are helping undermine your faith? Is it a talk show host that regularly undermines your beliefs and your rooting in Christ? Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend And you just really are excited about this relationship, but the truth of the matter is this person is gradually drawing you away. Maybe it's a musical artist that you're enamored with, but you know that his or her message is poisonous to your faith. What's the Jezebel influence in your life? You see, God wants us to grow in faith by regularly exposing ourselves to the truth and building building our Christian life on a solid foundation of truth. To do that, we've got to be careful what we're listening to. And by the way, that's why in each of these letters, and here again in verse 29, the Lord says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the Spirit is speaking, we're just not always listening. He's speaking. So before we quickly move on from this, I would say to you that if there was one practice that I could just will to happen in your life, you know what it would be? If I could, if I could have one practice, just one, that for everybody under the sound of my voice, everyone who calls Grace Fellowship their church home, if there was one practice I could get you to do every day or almost every day, you know what it would be? It would be to get into the Word of God, read a portion of it, either large or small, might be very small, and spend some time talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, how does this impact my life? How can I live this truth out in my daily life? I'll tell you, folks, if everybody in this church did that on a regular basis, it would be so dramatic, the transformation, you wouldn't even recognize this church. I mean, I'm telling you, we would be hearing from God so powerfully. There'd be so many dramatic life change, so much life change happening. This, the power of God's gospel would explode across the capital region. There is no single practice you can engage in that is more catalytic and life-changing than just getting in the Bible and asking God to show you how you can live this out. Nothing, nothing is more powerful than that. That will change everything about your life when you begin to regularly do that. I'll tell you, I didn't have a whole lot going for me when I came to Christ at the age of 13, but God... (laughs) divinely guided me to one practice and it made my life take off like a spiritual rocket. For some reason, I began getting in the Bible 
and hiding it in my heart and mind and asking God, Lord, how do I live this out? Every day I knelt by my bed and prayed, Lord, show me what this looks like because I didn't have a lot of good models. Show me what this looks like to live this way. If you do that, you'll be having ears to hear. God will change your life. Well, there's a third uh, compliment the Lord gives this church in Thyatira, and that is this function called service. Now, I don't know about you, but every time uh, anybody I've ever known has gone to the doctor, unless they're just a fitness fiend, unless they're just so into fitness, the doctor says, no, they got this covered already. Just about everybody I know, the doctor gives a piece of advice, be good for you to get more exercise, right? It's good sound advice. So what I have here is sort of a pedometer, this little device. Many of you have these. I see you wearing them. You can also do the same function on your smartphone. Uh, There's a device there. I've actually used the one on my iPhone where you turn that device on. You get that app, and it monitors literally how many steps you take in a day as long as that function is on. It monitors that. And so some would say what you're shooting for is about 10,000 steps a day. That's a good, active, vigorous life if you're getting that. Uh, When I had mine turned on, I got between 1,000 and 2,000. What does that tell you, all right? Between 1,000 and 2,000, it it means, among other things, my life is a fair, my job is a sedentary job. I'm sitting a lot. Thank God I... I work out separate. I didn't have the pedometer on when I was running on the treadmill. But if it was all based on just my steps each day, it would be paltry and inadequate. How much exercise are you giving? For centuries now, Christians have looked to the Dead Sea in Palestine as a metaphor of spiritual life, as an illustration And you've probably heard it yourself. You've probably heard a pastor stand up and say, you know why the Dead Sea is dead? Because there's water going in, but there's no outflow. It all just stops right there. Lot going in, but nothing going out. Deadness. And indeed, any Christian life that is just sitting and soaking will not be healthy, it will not be strong, it will eventually be sour and have the marks of death. We need to engage and exercise our love and faith through service. Now, folks, we have so many opportunities to do that. It is incredible. Just this last spring, many of you will recall, we had a whole series devoted to what we called Grace in Action, and we highlighted 19 of our ministry partners around the area where we are actively engaged with them in serving the poor, the homeless, the desolate, the underprivileged people in our region. I I hope you're in some way engaged in service. Now I realize that many of you have full lives, so full you think, I can't get another thing in. I, I get that, I get that. But you know what I've done just in my own life? I've got a pretty full life too. But I decided since last spring, I decided, you know what, even though I don't think I can spare the hours, I'm going to take at least two hours a week, and I'm going to go serve the homeless, the poor, the hurting in our area. And 
And so I went to one of our ministry partners in Troy, and I said, how can I serve? And they asked me several times, several of their staff asked, why are you doing this? And I said, well, thanks for asking, first of all. Well, the first reason, it's very clear for me. The first reason is I hope I can actually help somebody because, boy, Lord knows there's a lot of needs. I hope I can actually help some hurting people. But the second reason, if you're merely being honest here, is for me. My soul needs it. My understanding of Scripture is that it's not okay just to take in. We need to exercise. We need to use that spiritual muscle. We need to begin to pour out in service. And there are no healthy Christians who aren't serving in some way. So I hope you'll go do some good deeds. Now, let me just pause right here and and make a little footnote. Because here's my concern that those of you listening to me right now and what I just, just said, you say, oh, I've, I've heard that before. I know, where, I know what he's about. I, I've heard that message all my life. Growing up in the church, I heard, yeah, we, we need to do good deeds. We need to be a good person so we can go to heaven one day. Thank you for that reminder, Pastor. I, yeah, I need to be a nice, good person, do good deeds so I can be good enough to go to heaven. That's not what you heard from me. That is the antithesis of the gospel. Everybody hear that? That is the antithesis of what the gospel teaches. Here's what the gospel teaches. For it is by grace you're saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But you know what the very next verse says after that, after the Lord makes clear, we're saved not by our performance, not by getting on the treadmill and trying to be good enough and do enough good deeds where our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. And God will say, well, you've been a good person. Come on in. That's not how you're saved. People who go to heaven are people who acknowledge I'll never be good enough. The standard is too high. I've blown it. The only way I'm going to have admission to heaven is if I get somebody else's goodness. And that somebody else is Jesus who died on the cross for you. That's how you go to heaven. You trust in what Christ did for you and his goodness, the Bible says, is imputed or transferred to your account. That's good news. That's the gospel. But guess what happens next? Once that's occurred for you, people who really have had that experience of God's righteousness being transferred to them, guess what? They live the rest of their lives as a PS, saying, thank you, Lord, for what you did for me. Now, I want to give back. Now, I want to pour out for your sake and in your name. And that's why we do good deeds. The very next verse says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as the reformers said, we're not saved by faith and works. We're saved by a faith that works. But you show me a person who has no desire to serve, and I'll show you a person where I've really got reason to doubt if they've ever been saved. You can take that to the bank. Show me a person who has no interest in serving, and I'll show you a person who has never probably experienced God's saving grace because it blows you away when you realize I deserve to be lost, but I'm not because God was so good to me in Christ. 
You don't want to be a slug after that. You don't want to be a knot on a log. You don't want to say, well, we'll let people just help themselves. You want to say, God, thank you. Now, I want to, I want to do anything I can to help other people find you and to help other people have a better life. Folks, the secret to satisfaction is not just trying to be happy. It's sacrificing for others. A few years ago, the Los Angeles Times carried an article entitled, Studies Find Depression Epidemic in Young Adults. And here's what they said, that people born in the last 30 years have a much higher incidence of depression than their grandparents did. And that's so amazing because their, their grandparents had so many fewer conveniences and comforts. And then the article goes on to say that the reason for this depression is the cultural occurrences that have exalted the individual, end quote. In other words, the more you focus on yourself and try to be happy, the more likely you'll be depressed. Satisfaction, soul health comes from getting the focus off of yourself and on to trying to help other people. Verse 23, Jesus goes on to say, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And though we are saved by grace through faith, make no mistake, there's no way around the fact that Jesus knows our deeds and our work done for him really matters more than we probably ever realize. Well, the final thing that the Lord highlights here in checking their health, love, faith, service, and the final word is perseverance perseverance. Now, I don't know if you can see this well or not, but this is one of the things that you use when you're doing a stress test. Your doctor may order a stress test for you. I've done a couple of these in my life. Uh, I think it was when I was changing physicians. And uh, so they wanted to get a baseline for how my heart was and how much I should persevere through stress. So you get on this treadmill, they crank it all the way up, and you begin to walk, and they attach these little pads here all over your torso, all over your chest mostly. And I had a sadistic nurse in my last stress test. She took these sticky little pads right here that were attached to these, and she delighted in putting them on the hairiest parts of my chest. And then when you're done with the test and you have no fight left in you, she with glee jerks them off. I hope you don't have a nurse like that. But the point of a stress test is to see how you can persevere under difficult situations. How are you doing when the going gets tough? How can you persevere through this? Look at what the Lord says to this church. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, that is Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep, deep secrets, and then parenthetically he says, I will not impose any other burden on you. In other words, I'm not going to give you some new challenge here. <clears throat> and then notice these words, only hold on to what you have until I come. The Lord's word to some of you today is you just need to hold on. You might want to circle those words in your Bible. Hold on. Sometimes the challenge is so great, the stress is so great, you just need to hold on. 
And then he ends this passage with the promise, for those who overcome, he's going to give authority. He says he's going to give them the morning star. Commentators wonder what that means. Jesus is called the bright morning star in chapter 22, verse 16. So maybe it's just saying, I'm going to give you Jesus in all of his fullness. But that, that's kind of weird because we already have Jesus. Some commentators believe, I'll give you the morning star, is referring to Daniel 12 and Philippians 2, where Daniel says, those who turn many to righteousness will shine like stars. Paul says in Philippians 2, you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And maybe he's just saying, look, you're going to be representing Jesus well. You're going to be shining great, just like a star. Or interestingly, Domitian the current Roman emperor at this time, on inscriptions and in various articles was called the morning star. So maybe he's saying here, look, in Christ, make no mistake, we're all royalty. You are a daughter of the king, sister. Sir, you are a son of the king. But whatever it means, whatever it means, he's saying, this is going to be good for you when you overcome. And I like these words here in verse 19, you are now doing more than you did at first. Whenever I go to the doctor, I want to be sure that I'm doing better, hopefully, than I was doing the last time. Better habits, better health, better patterns, better practices, a better prognosis. The vital signs are good. Now, as we close, let me ask you this. If Jesus has given you a checkup today regarding your love and faith, your service and perseverance, how would you be doing? As we go from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ to close to Christ to becoming fully Christ-centered, here's the thing. We want to be the healthiest follower of Jesus we can possibly be. And may that be true of all of us. Father, thank you for your amazing grace that helps us to shine. Lord, I thank you for the love and faith, the service and perseverance that mark this church. But oh, we have so much growing to do. And I pray, oh God, it could be said of us as of Thyatira, you know what, you're doing more that truly matters than you did at first. We know that activity alone for you does not equal intimacy with you. We get it, Lord. But help us to do what is truly on your heart. Help us to be so centered in you, God, so centered in you that you would look at us and give us a clean bill of health. Say, wow, the vital signs are fantastic. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.